are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. My name is David Guzik. I'm very pleased you could join me today. Uh, This is our Thursday afternoon, or at least it's afternoon here on the West Coast of the United States. I know we have many viewers from Europe, from Africa, from other places, and uh, it's evening for you. But no matter what time it is in your time zone, I'm very, very pleased that you could join us today. What we do on a Thursday is we get together, and I begin with a lead question uh, that comes from all different sources. It could come from email, comes from social media, it could be a leftover question from a previous time together. Uh, but today we're starting with a question that came uh, sort of from an unusual source. This Tuesday, just two days ago, I did a brief test stream to sort out a few things related to a different way that we're scheduling our Thursday question and answer time. And we only had a few viewers, and it really wasn't time to ask questions. I was just saying, hi, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for confirming that we're on. Glad we could get it to work, all the rest of that. But one enterprising live viewer uh, asked a question. And in tribute to him, I thought I'd use that as our lead question today. Uh, By the way, I do want to say thank you so much for praying for our Africa trip. Our time in Kenya and Uganda was genuinely blessed, and I think it was fruitful for God's kingdom, and I know one reason for that is because people prayed. And if you were one of those who prayed for our trip that we just had last week, well, I'm very grateful for it. Our plan next week is to be in Germany. So God willing, we'll do the Q&A next Thursday from my conference location in Siegen, Germany, That's a small city in the southeast corner of the province of Nordrhein-Westfalen. So anyway, here's our lead question from today from Alfredo, who just kind of couldn't resist throwing in this question uh, on our very brief time last week, uh, where we were really just considering um, testing a live stream. But Alfredo asked this question. He said, is it biblically sound to say that just as God favored Abel's offering over Cain's, that there is only one way to worship God, and thus only one denomination of sect or Christianity that is correct. Okay, so do you catch Alfredo's connection? Alfredo is taking a look at Abel's offering compared to Cain's offering. That's in Genesis chapter 4. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Does that show us that there's only one way to worship God? And being only one way to worship God, does that mean that only one Christian denomination or sect of Christianity is correct? Now, in in addressing the question that Alfredo asked, I'm going to speak about it regarding worship because that was Alfredo's specific focus. Listen, there's a lot more that can be said about Christian denominations when it comes to doctrine when it comes to their practice in ministry, when it comes to their stands on modern cultural issues, and so forth. So there's a lot to be said about all those things, but because Alfredo's question was really only about worship, I'll confine my reply just to the idea of worship. And Alfredo brought up the idea from Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 3, 
where it describes the actions of Cain and Abel. And of course, it describes Cain's sin of murdering his brother. Kind of the backstory to that was Cain and Abel were both bringing offerings to the Lord. Cain was a farmer, a tiller of the ground, and so he brought produce, grain, vegetables, whatever it would be, fruit that he could grow. That's what he brought in his sacrifice to God. Abel was a herder of sheep, goats, cattle, whatever it would be. So he brought an offering from the flock to the Lord. God received Abel's sacrifice. God did not receive Cain's sacrifice. And what Alfredo is asking is, does this indicate to us that there's only one way to worship God, and therefore there's only one Christian denomination or one Christian sect that is correct? Well, Alfredo, I'm going to take your question here. Uh, Just you ask, uh, is there only one way to worship God? I'm going to basically say that, um, yes, there is only one way to worship God. And, and it's the way that Abel worshipped God, not the way that Cain worshipped God. And what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible tells us specifically what it was about Abel's offering that made it better than Cain's offering. We find this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where we read, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. Now, once you notice there, according to the author of Hebrews, the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering was not that one was a blood sacrifice and the other was, you know, of things grown from the ground, grain, vegetables, produce, fruit, whatever it would be. That was not the difference. The difference was not between blood and not blood. The difference was between faith and not faith. Again, Hebrews 11.4 says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So, There's only one way to truly worship God by faith. And the sacrifice of Abel, as opposed to the sacrifice of Cain, demonstrates this to us. So, one way to truly worship God by faith. Now, I'm going to add to that a little bit. If we look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 24, we see this. Jesus speaking, God is spirit And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice the emphasis of Jesus' word there, must. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So by this, we can say that there's only one way to worship God, truly to worship him. And that's by faith and in spirit and truth. That's what's essential for our worship, to worship God and to worship him in spirit and truth. And any Christian or any Christian denomination that truly worships God in faith, truly worships God in spirit and truth, 
is a true Christian denomination. This is the basis for true worship. It's not found in places. It's not found in buildings. It's not found in trappings, but actually it's found in spirit and truth. If a group of Christians gathers in a magnificent cathedral, beautiful to look at, and uh, they're there on the magnificent cathedral, but they're not worshiping God in faith. They're not worshiping God in spirit and according to his truth. That's not true worship. But if a group of believers gathers under a tree, out in the outdoors, and they don't have any chairs, they don't have any sound system, they don't have any of those things, all they are is believers gathering together, worshiping God, spending time in his word, together with one another, then that is worship that honors God. That is worship according to spirit and truth. To worship God in spirit means that you're concerned with spiritual realities. Not so much places or outward sacrifices, cleansings and trappings, none of that. You're worshiping God in spirit. To worship in truth means that you worship according to the whole counsel of God's word, especially considering the New Testament revelation. It also means that you come to God personally in truth, not in pretense or mere display of spirituality. Now, I'm sure that there are sincere people that gather at the Kingdom Hall of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, what we normally call the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm sure there's people gather together there and they're sincere and they probably sing songs to worship God. But I'll tell you, they are not worshiping God in truth because the God they claim to worship is not the God revealed in the Bible. It's a God of their own creation or the creation of Charles Taze Russell and his successors. So they're not worshiping God in spirit and truth. Now, for me personally, if you think about the other Christian denominations, whether they be from Protestant denominations, whether they include more historic denominations of the uh, Orthodox communion, Anglican communion, even uh, some within the Roman Catholic fold. For me, the liturgies, ceremonies, vestments, bells, rituals, images, and all the rest of that that are present in many churches, that makes it more difficult for me to worship God in spirit and truth. But I recognize that that's not the case for all of my brothers and sisters in God's family. So I would say uh, to, or I would say about my brothers and sisters in such liturgical denominations or in the Orthodox communions. I, I trust that your forms of worship are helpful for you in your worship of God in spirit and truth. Your forms aren't helpful for me, but I'm not going to judge whether or not they're helpful for you. If they aren't helpful, then you should seek to worship God with forms and places that are helpful for the essential things that should mark Christian worship. Spirit, truth, and faith. Those are the things that mark true Christian worship.
I would say denominations or groups that do not worship God in spirit, truth, and faith should not be considered true Christian denominations. But this is what we acknowledge. You can be in a good church. You can be in the best church and still fail to you personally. You're not worshiping God in spirit, truth, and faith. This is important not only for the church as a congregation, not only for denominations as groups, but it's important for individual believers to say, I'm going to worship God in spirit, I'm going to worship God in truth, and I'm going to worship God in faith. That is the only way to truly worship God. Thank you for your question, Alfredo. And before I get to the questions that are coming in on the live chat, there's one more thing I'd like to say. It is commonly said that there are, the figure that sort of sticks in my mind, it's commonly said that there's 30,000 or 40,000 Christian denominations. Friends, I have no idea where people get that figure. To me, it seems absurdly high. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say maybe there's 500 or 1,000 at the very most Christian denominations. That figure that commonly gets quoted 30,000, 40,000 Christian denominations. Listen, I would not accept that figure without knowing how they calculated it and perhaps without seeing a list of what they claim are the 30 or 40,000 denominations in, in Christianity. You know, you, you claim there are, okay, well, let's see the list. I want to see the list of 30,000 separate Christian denominations. I, again, I, I'm not saying that I know 100% that that's a false figure. But it seems wrong to me, seems way too high. And again, I have no idea how anybody came upon that figure. I I wouldn't accept it without knowing a lot more about it. All right, that's it for our lead question. Let me click over to our um, questions that come in on live chat. Although, I got to say a couple of things. Number one, I just received notice from our moderator that today, May 11th, is our YouTube anniversary. Apparently, it was, a, a, gosh, maybe four years ago, maybe five years ago. I should have looked it up when it was exactly. But May 11th is our YouTube you, uh, anniversary. Today is our YouTube birthday. It's been four or five years today that we've been on YouTube as Enduring Word, as uh, the Enduring Word David Guzik uh, YouTube channel. I want to thank you. And God has really blessed. I saw recently that we surpassed our, what was it, 10 millionth view, that just in the last year, we've had more than 4 million views. Uh, of course, we're very blessed by the number of subscribers that we have. You are invited to subscribe. If you'd like to subscribe, click notifications, like the video, all those things that you're supposed to do on YouTube that makes uh, our content more easily found by other people. So I want to acknowledge our YouTube birthday, but I also want to acknowledge... I'll send her a message later on. She's probably not watching, but uh, one of our Enduring Word team, Elliot Bertha, I've heard today that today is her birthday. So God bless you, Elliot. So happy that you're part of our Enduring Word team and uh, praise the Lord for what God continues to do. All right, let me get beyond that and go to our questions now. Uh, first question from uh, Adonis who asks, which is the correct rendering of Psalm twenty two sixteen? They pierced my hands and my feet, 
or like a lion, my hands and my feet in Psalm 22, 16. Uh, Adonis, um, from my preliminary research, and I remember going through that Psalm some time ago, I think that pierced is a better rendering. Um, of course, like many things with some ancient manuscripts or understanding of old words in the Hebrew, uh, there can be some debate about it. Um, but again, I, I think that the more accurate one is pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, that seems to connect better with some other passages of scripture that it would be built upon. Um, so I, I, I just do think the correct rendering is pierced my hands, and my feet. I think that there's more, there is some evidence, obviously, for the alternative rendering, like a lion, my hands and feet. Um, but I think that uh, the better evidence is on the side of they pierced my hands and my feet. And Adonis has a related second question that I'll get to. Adonis asks, did Origen corrupt the Septuagint? Are there other ancient church fathers besides Jerome who independently decry the Septuagint? Um, Adonis, I would just say not to my knowledge. Again, I don't regard myself as an expert on the early church fathers. I have some very kind of cursory uh, familiarity with them. But uh, I don't know of early church fathers who decried the Septuagint. And I would have a generally favorable attitude towards the Septuagint, being that it was the Bible used by the New Testament church. When Jesus, when the apostles are quoting the Old Testament, generally speaking, they're quoting the Septuagint. And dear viewer or listener, if you're uh, with us and you don't know what the Septuagint is, don't feel guilty about that. Let me explain. The Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew scriptures, what we commonly call the Old Testament. It's a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek that happened, oh, 250 years or so before the time of Jesus Christ. A team of scholars, uh, they said it was 70 scholars. I think that's sort of contested whether or not it was exactly 70. But a team of Jewish scholars translated the... Hebrew scriptures, again, what we commonly call the Old Testament, into Greek, and it was a significant translation and a great translation, and that's known as the Septuagint. Septuagint refers to 70, 70 scholars that translated this work. Uh, so you'll hear reference to the Septuagint somewhere around me. I have a Septuagint Bible. I don't think it's behind me. I think it's on another shelf. But you can get a trans... You probably couldn't hear me when I was turned away. Um, you can get uh, translations of the Septuagint into English and other languages as well. Okay, thank you for those questions, Adonis. Let me get to the next question here from Susan, who asks, uh, Hi, Pastor David, is it right to think that we are nothing to God? He gave his son for us, so that is confusing to me, thanks. No, Susan, I don't think that's the right way to think. Um, we are something to God. God loves us. God sent his son to redeem fallen humanity. Um, even though man is in sin and rebellion, the only reason that matters to God is because we are something before him. If mankind were truly nothing before the Lord, then why would the Lord care? Why would it matter to God at all if we sinned? Um, I, I don't think that, okay, let, let's just... 
those of you who own pets, you know that sometimes your dog is a bad dog. Not all the time. I trust that generally your dog is a good dog. But there's times when your dog is a bad dog, that he sins, that he does bad or destructive things. Well, I don't think that God is concerned with the sins of dogs the same way that he's concerned with the sins of human beings. Why? Well, because we're something to God. We matter to him in a way that surpasses uh, the way God regards and holds to dogs or other animals in this world. So it's not right to think that we're nothing to God. He, as you say in your question, Susan, we're something to him. I think that God's trouble over our sin, his his concern over our sinful state, his offense over our sinful state is rooted in the fact that we are something to him, that we are made in his image. Now, Susan, I do want to caution you. There's a, a wrong way to think about this. The wrong way to think about this follows these lines. Um, I'm so awesome that even God is concerned with me, is thinking about me. That's the wrong way to think about it. For whatever reason that God thinks about us or is concerned with us, that we matter to him, it's not intrinsically because we're so awesome. It's because he's so awesome. So instead of either having or giving other people the idea that um, I'm so awesome that even God cares about me, I matter to him. No, the, the truth is God is so awesome that he thinks about even us. So hope you think about that, Susan. Next question comes from Andromeda, who says, why in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 7, does it seem that God was expecting another attitude from Israel and he was surprised when they sinned if he's omniscient? Um, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 says this. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, but she did not return and her treacherous Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, that I put her away and gave her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous Jew, sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Okay, uh, Andromeda, this is a good question, but really it's fairly simply explained. God speaks to us in human terms. The technical word for that is an anthropomorphism. God speaks to us in ways that we can understand, that relate to us. Um, we do it all the time with other things. Since I mentioned dogs before, let's keep talking about dogs. Look, when, when you see that your dog is sad, you'll say the dog is sad, even though you don't understand the exact emotion going on to him, but the human parallel to whatever your dog is going through is sadness. The human parallel to whatever your dog is expressing is happiness. We don't know exactly how sadness and happiness work within the mind, within the being of a dog, but we can make a human analogy to it, and the human analogy has some accuracy. You're not crazy to say your dog is sad, your dog is happy. Um, that's a very natural, human, and I would say accurate way to think, even though technically there can be some difference between dog sadness and human sadness, dog happiness and human happiness. Well, in the same way, God speaks to us about himself in terms that we can understand. We're not God. Believe me, 
the distance between you and your pet, your dog, if you have a dog, the difference between humanity and the canine world, the distance between that is much smaller than the distance between us and God. Yet, God loves to reveal himself. So he speaks to us in the ways that sometimes we can only understand him, and that's putting himself in human terms. So God wants to relate how the betrayal of Judah, the betrayal of Israel, the northern kingdom, was received by him. And the only way he can do it is by expressing a sense of surprise. Was God actually surprised? At, Whoa, I didn't know that was going to happen. No, that's not it. But it, it, it's the nearest God can come to, to explain it to us, expressing himself in human terms, even though the exact thing doesn't really apply to him. So it's just the way that God can and does express himself to us. Andromeda, you, you'll find these examples in other situations too. Um, when it says that God repents, when it implies that God changed his mind. Um, again, we know that God, the eternal, the divine, does not do these things, but it's the best way that God can explain to us what he was thinking, experiencing, acting upon. Hope that's helpful for you there. Andromeda. Next question comes from Tunnel Banal, Shugul Tre. Going to be in Sweden later on, end of July, beginning of August this year. Who says, hello from Sweden. Uh, where do the souls of both the saved and the lost go who die in the 2000 or uh, 1007 years between the rapture and judgment day go to awaiting eternity? All right, Tunnel Banan Shugotre. I'll give you just a very quick answer to what actually is a much longer question. And th this is by bringing together several passages of Scripture. There's not one single passage that sort of spells this out from beginning to end. But by piecing together several different passages of Scripture, we would say this. And again, I, th what I'm going to share with you now, this isn't under universal agreement in the Christian world, but it's how I understand. And I'm not alone in this. There's many people who understand it this way. But I, I, I do want to let you know that there's differing opinions on this in the Christian world. But here's how I would explain it. Before the finished work of Jesus Christ, all the dead went to a place called Hades, or Sheol, the place of the dead. In the place of the dead, there was an area of blessedness and comfort. That place was referred to as the bosom of Abraham. Then there was a place of torment and agony. That place has no specific name. It's just the place of torment and agony. The believing dead went to the place of comfort and blessing. The unbelieving dead, those outside of God and rejecting Christ even uh, in advance of his coming, those people went to the place of torment. When Jesus finished his work on the cross, he led those in the place of what you might call the blessed uh, dead, so to speak, he took those people with him to heaven. They could go to heaven because the price was finally paid by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Up until then, the price was not paid. It would be paid. There was an antecedent of being paid, but it was not finally paid until Jesus did what he did on the cross. Jesus led those people to heaven. However, the place of torment in Hades remains. And that is the place where the unbelieving dead, the Christ-rejecting dead, 
That's where they go right now. Do they go to Hades? Technically, they don't go to hell yet. They go to Hades or Sheol. It's a place of torment. Those who die in the Lord go directly to heaven. As the Apostle Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the Lord is in heaven. They believers are with him in heaven. The uh, place of the blessed dead, the bosom of Abraham, so to speak, in Sheol or Hades is shut down for business, so to speak. Now, those who die in the Lord go to be with the Lord in heaven. Now, at the final judgment, God will take those in Hades. They will appear before the great white throne of judgment, and then they will be sent to Gehenna, the lake of fire, what we usually properly think of as hell. That's a very quick summation, I think, of what the Bible says uh, where the souls of the saved and the souls of the lost go where they died. Um, again, that's where it happens right now. Now, you're asking what happens to them between the rapture and the judgment day, uh, that time during the millennium. I would think that those who die in the Lord in that period, again, they go straight to heaven. Those who die apart from Christ in that period go to Hades because that final judgment is not until after the millennium, after those 1,007 years that you mentioned. Hope that's helpful for you there. Tunnel Banan, Shugotre. They would go either to Hades, awaiting the final judgment, which happens afterwards, or they would go directly to heaven. Next question comes from Sarah, who asks, does repent mean to change one's mind, or does it mean to turn from sin? Many I know say in order to get saved, you have to repent and believe, and they describe repent as turn from sin. Do you have to turn from sin and believe to be saved or just believe? Please provide an answer and explain it in a way that's explicit and comprehensive so I can understand this and send this video to my friends. Thank you. Well, Sarah, I'll do the best I can. You ask the question, does repent mean to change one's mind or does it mean to turn from sin? Sir, the answer to that question is yes. It means or implies both. It's a changing of the mind that will show itself in action. So it's not merely a change in thinking, though it includes that, but it's a change in thinking that's so true, so thorough, that it will result in action, a changing of the life to turn from sin. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. Uh, if I'm driving on a road and I'm faced with a fork in the road, I can either go to the right or I can go to the left. And let's say I know or at least come to believe that going to the left will mean uh, that the road is out, there's terrible danger there, and I'll die for sure. Going to the right means safety. I can say... I believe I should go on the way to the right. But if I actually go on the way to the left and just believe I should have gone on the way to the right, uh, then my actions aren't consistent with what I believe. I don't really believe it. Real belief, real change in mind will result, result not just in thinking, but in actions. Now, sometimes... Repentance is primarily a matter of changing or thinking. Let me give you an example from the first century. On the day of Pentecost, 
when 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ, Peter, in his sermon, specifically called them to repent. Now, what did they have to repent of? If these people were godly Jews, which we assume they were, they were there at the feast. If they were godly Jews, there was very little in their conduct that they had to repent of. Very little. Maybe about the only things that they would have to repent of in their conduct was offering sacrifices for atonement. Uh, They were no longer to do that because Jesus had fulfilled all the atonement. But there was very little. If they were godly Jews, they were already not lying, not stealing. They were living in a way honoring to God. They loved their neighbor. They cared for one another. They were concerned with justice and righteousness. I could go on and on. But assuming they were godly Jews, then for them, repentance meant a change of thinking. They had to change their mind about who Jesus Christ was. And they did. Whereas before, they saw him as an accursed person who deserved to die. Now they looked at Jesus and saw the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one to whom they should submit their lives to and follow all the days of their life. But in their moral conduct, there wasn't much of a change. For them, for many or most of the Jews who put their faith in Jesus, who repented on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, For them, repentance was mainly a matter of changing their thinking. But now I want you to think of a pagan. Now, the gospel didn't go out to the pagans, to the Gentiles, for several years. But once it did, think about a pagan who's worshiping their idols with all sorts of sexual immorality, who has the normal Greek way of thinking regarding drunkenness, the normal Greek way of thinking regarding uh, sexual morality, all, all the rest of it. Now, when they believe upon Jesus, they have to believe, yes, they have to change their minds, but they also have to bring their lives into conformity to God's standard morality. And and those changes might not happen all at once. Those changes won't be finished until they're glorified in their glorified bodies, but there needs to be a determination to say, I'm going to turn from sin and self and I'm going to turn towards Jesus. Sometimes I say that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. The one side faith is saying, I'm going to turn towards Jesus Christ and put my trust in him. But I can't turn towards Jesus without turning my back on sin and self. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is moving away from sin and self. Faith is moving towards Jesus. And I can't do one without doing the other. So, Sarah, that's the way that it makes the most sense to me to explain what repentance and what faith is and why repentance is actually an important component of faith. To say, I believe in Jesus, I trust in him, I rely on him, I cling to him, because that's what biblical faith really is. It's not just intellectual agreement. But to say that I believe in Jesus should, indeed, must have a corresponding effect on how I act with my life. Hope that's helpful for you, Sarah. And uh, if your friends see this on video later, God bless them, and I hope it helps us all to understand it maybe just a little bit better. 
Next question comes from he is returning soon. You got to like that screen name. Is Zechariah 12, 10, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the same event and when Israel repents? And is Mark chapter 13, verses 26 and 27, Christ's second coming with the saints, the millennial reign meant to restore Israel. Thank you. Okay, let me go over these passages of scripture and thank you to our moderator for sending these passages of scripture to us. Here, uh, here we go. Uh, Zechariah twelve ten. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Um, okay, first of all, he is returning soon. I don't believe Zechariah 12.10 is the same event as the rapture, but it is connected to Israel's obvious repentance, which is really part of the new covenant. I find this a fascinating subject, that the new covenant isn't only about uh Jesus's atonement and making a new relationship with God in the outpouring of the Spirit. Those are obvious aspects of the new covenant. But another aspect of the new covenant that doesn't get spoken about a lot is the gathering and restoration and coming to faith of Israel. So I would regard that as part of the new covenant, but not technically part of the rapture. It's connected to the rapture in the case of um, when God takes away his church, he will turn the focus of his redemptive plan upon Israel again, instead of the nations as a whole. Now, please, I said focus. It doesn't mean that God has no interest in the nations when he turns his focus upon Israel, not at all. It means that God has, it doesn't mean that God has no interest in Israel when his focus now is on the broader nations. Of course not, the two things don't contradict each other, but it's a matter of focus in God's redemptive plan, his plan of the ages. So of the first one, I would say that it's not the same event as the rapture, but it's connected to it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, obviously, that's the catching away of the church. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. No, I would say that that is reference to the glorious return of Jesus, what some people refer to as the second coming but the coming of Jesus described in Revelation chapter 19. As is true with Mark chapter 13, um, seeing the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, that's referring to something that the whole earth, that every eye on earth sees, happens. Um, No, that's referring referring to what I would call the glorious return of Jesus. And if you want to talk about it in, in a big picture, I see the second coming as having two distinct aspects One, the catching away of the church with Jesus, and the second being the glorious return of Jesus with his church, as well as angelic hosts, to conquer a God-rejecting world. So, I hope that's helpful for you there. He's returning soon. Let me go on to the next question from Susan. What does in spirit and truth mean? Well, Susan, I would just refer you back to what I said Um, To worship in spirit means that you're concerned with spiritual realities, not so much places or outward sacrifices. Um, 
If a person has the attitude, I can only worship God in a particular building or at a particular place, that place might be a tree outside, well, then they're not really worshiping God in spirit. They're worshiping God. Uh, their worship of God requires something material, not something spirit. Spiritual worship means that I'm concerned with spiritual realities more than material realities. That's what it means fundamentally to worship God in spirit. To worship God in truth means that you worship him in consistency with the truth, in consistency with God reveals to us in the Bible. So if somebody is worshiping a God of their own imagination, they're not worshiping God in truth. If somebody is worshiping God in a way that's directly contradictory to his word, they're not worshiping him in truth. Um, I imagine um, a group of people who claim to be Christians. This is just imagination here. A group of Christians who be people who claim to be Christians and they gather together and they say, let's have a seance and worship the Lord. No, <laughs> your seance is not worship because it's not according to truth. It's directly contradictory to what God says we should do. So that, that's the quick way that I would summarize what it means to worship God in um, spirit and in truth. Thomas asks this question, even though the word has many examples of Jesus being God the Son, why is it that Jesus never said, I am God in those words? Well, Thomas, since this is something that the scriptures don't specifically say, there's no given explanation. The best we can do is just kind of speculate a little bit and guess, and I'm happy to do that. But I just want to draw the line between what we might sort of speculate or guess at and what the Bible specifically tells us. First of all, Jesus did very clearly say that he was God. Now, you're right. I don't think he, I'm searching through the scriptures in my mind. I don't know if Jesus publicly said, I am God the Son, but when he said, I and my Father are one, he was claiming to be God the Son, and the people who heard him understood him to be, because they picked up stones to stone him, and they specifically said, because you're claiming to be God. So, in ways that were completely clear and relevant to his audience, Jesus did publicly proclaim his deity. As for why he didn't use that specific formulation or, or use it often, I, I can't say. Um, maybe the way that that formulation would have sounded in the ears of his first listeners would have caused confusion. And Jesus obviously didn't want to confuse his listeners. He wanted to teach them. So what, what to us, being on this side of 2,000 years of Christian influence and teaching, what to us would have said, well, that would have made it perfectly clear. And why didn't he explain it that way? It might have caused confusion among his first listeners. I would say that's the best sort of approach I could give to you for that. Uh, next question comes from Dominica, who asks, 
Pastor, please explain the meaning of a transactional relationship with God. I heard about it as you expounded on Psalm 37.4, and biblical promises sound transactional. Forgiveness, the Lord's Prayer. Okay, Dominica, that, that's great. Um, and I'm glad you asked this question because it is something worth explaining. There is a sense in which when God makes a specific promise, then there is some transaction, transactional aspect to it. When God says, for example, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then there's a sense in which we can come to God and say, Lord, you said right here in your word that if I confess my sin to you, then you are faithful and just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. So Lord, I'm going to come and confess my sin to you and I believe that you're going to do for me what you promised to do when I confess my sin. Now, you're, you're absolutely right, Dominica. There's a sense in which that's transactional, but it's transactional based on God's specific promise, God's specific invitation to us in his promise. When we talk about a transactional relationship with God, it really comes to this. It's areas that are not specifically promised to us as believers. And God never promised. If we obey him in a certain way, if we do what he wants us to do, then he's going to give us whatever we want. God doesn't promise that. Um, God promises that as our desires align with his... Then, as Jesus said, you ask what you will and it shall be done for you. But that's because our desires have aligned with his. God is under no promise to fulfill our unaligned desires with him. So, there are people who kind of have this um, attitude. Well, God, um, I've been serving you. I've been honoring you. Therefore, give me what I want. I want a certain job. I want a certain relationship. I want a certain school placement. And then they get very distressed and disturbed when it doesn't come through. That, Dominica, is what I would refer to as a transactional relationship with God. Um. That's kind of the thing of, if I put in, you, you can think of a vending machine, you know, there's not so many vending machines anymore, but the kind of thing that you put some coins or some some uh, banknotes into, you, you, you put money into it in some form, you pull a lever or punch a button and it gives you what you ask for. Well, the idea of, well, if I just put into God what he says, pull a lever, he'll give me whatever I want. Now, there's some analogy to that in the legitimate promises of God. But the transactional problem in relationship with God really comes to the place of things that God has not promised to us. So I hope that's helpful for you, Dominica. All right, we sort of have a follow-up question here from Sarah asking um, if we must turn from sin and believe to be saved or just believe. Sarah asks, so do we need to tell people to turn from sin and believe? 
Or do we expect them to first only believe and then to turn from sin once they get saved, after they are saved? Because if you're not saved yet, turning from sin would be done in your own strength. Okay, uh, Sarah, yes, I do think that we should tell people that they do need to turn from sin and self and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent is an important message for Christians to preach. Uh, In a great sermon from uh, the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr, uh, he has a sermon that, um, actually, it's one of the few sermons that I sort of imitated myself. I I gave credit to Dr. Orr in this, but man, it's such a great sermon. Um, Dr. Orr pointed out that repent was the first word of John the Baptist when he preached. It was the first word of Jesus when he started preaching. It was the first word of the disciples when they preached. It was the first word of Peter when he preached. It was the first word of Paul when he preached. You could say that repent is the first word of the gospel. So we we don't want to call people to belief that has no connection to their life. And true belief will result in repentance if it's true. So, the way I will often explain is people need to be willing to turn from sin and self. Now, we don't expect them to clean themselves up before they come to God. That's not the idea at all. But what the idea is, are you coming to God willing to turn your back on and to leave behind sin and self? If a person isn't willing to do that, then they're not ready to come to Jesus. If a person is mired in all kinds of sin, let's say the person is a thief. They're a thief on every level. They steal, steal, steal. They steal by hacking bank accounts. They steal with corrupt insider trading. They steal by taking the handbags of little old ladies. They are a thief on every level. Now, you're doing a disservice to that person by telling them that they can be a believer, that they can be born again and not give up their stealing. No, for that person... Turning to Jesus, putting their faith in him would mean turning. Now, obviously, they can't do that without God's strength in them, but they shouldn't come to faith under the wrong impression that I can be a Christian thief. I can be a Christian fornicator. I can be a Christian, I don't know, whatever you want. I, I can be a Christian practicing homosexual. These things are contradictions to faith. I can be a Christian, uh, again, as I said before, fornicator, whatever it would be. So we need to let people know honestly that the Christian life means turning your back on sin, turning your back on self. It's not a mere intellectual agreement with Christian ideas. It's a surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, however that's explained, it should be explained. Uh, Bob asks the question, do Christians cremate? Well, Bob, they certainly can. Uh, Now, by tradition, some Christian denominations do not cremate. Uh, They think it disrespects God's promise to resurrect the body. And because they want to respect God's promise to resurrect the body, they don't want to disrespect it. 
they refuse to cremate. But there's nothing in the scripture that prohibits cremation. And I would say cremation does to the body in 30 minutes what 10 years in the ground does to the body. So it really doesn't make any difference. The body will decay and turn to ashes and dust one way or another. So I don't think there's any scriptural prohibition to cremation, but there are some Christian traditions that prohibit cremation. Hope that's helpful for you there, Bob. Uh, Next question comes from Midlands Mercantile Law Services. Great. If I ever need law services, I'm coming to you, Midlands Mercantile Law Services. What are the basic or fundamental portions of Scripture to understand the anointing? Well, the place I first come to is the passage in 1 John. Man, I can't give you the exact uh, chapter and verse. I think it's in 1 John chapter 4, where John says to all believers, you have an anointing. Every true believer, every person who is sealed by the Spirit of God has an anointing from God. They are anointed, sealed, dabbed, anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that's what anointing is. Anointing, of course, uh, refers to the application of oil to something. And um, if something has had oil applied to it, it's been anointed. Well, symbolically, the Holy Spirit is pictured as oil. Many times, there's some great biblical reasons for that, speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's enough just for us to recognize the fact right now. Therefore, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit within a person can be described as anointing. And in 1 John, again, I think right away, it's 1 John chapter 4, but I, I don't remember the exact chapter and verse right now. It says to all believers, you have an anointing. Now, what many people mean when they talk about anointing is they mean a spiritual gifting. And that's diverse among the body of Christ. The Bible says that God distributes gift within gifts within his church family, his, his body, so to speak, as he pleases. Some have a gift of helps. Some have a gift of exhortation. Some have a gift of, uh, of compassion. Some have a gift of mercy. Some have a gift of teaching. Some have a gift of evangelism. So there's different gifts that God gives to his people. And sometimes people say anointing when really they mean that person is gifted. The concepts are related, but they're not the same. And so that's just simply how I would explain it. Um, There's a sense of anointing that is common to every believer, but not every believer is gifted the same, and not every believer is gifted in the same measure. Hope that's helpful for you now. Okay, we're going to start the lightning round. I'm going to take a drink of water here. Lightning round. Anahui asks, do we know if Jesus's transfiguration happened on Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor? No, we don't know. I lean towards saying Mount Hermon or Hermon, but uh, I think that the uh, evidence isn't entirely clear. I don't know if we can say for certainty, but to me, for several reasons, Mount Hermon makes more sense. Thank you for that question, Anuhui. 
A spirit warrior asks, can you explain the difference in a simple saving faith versus the gift of faith? Well, spirit warrior, one difference is, is that every person who's born again has saving faith. That's common to everybody who's born again. However, God gives a particular gift of faith, and this would be a remarkable ability to trust God in a specific circumstance. It's not the the common um, faith that everybody who has, who believes. This is a unique gifting of the Holy Spirit, the ability to trust God in a remarkable, maybe even an unusual way in a specific circumstance. Marilyn asks, Hi, Pastor David. Seemingly, Abel was the first to die. Where did he go, and was he there alone? Yes, Marilyn, I would say he was there alone. I would say that Abel went to this place, the bosom of Abraham, even though Abraham wasn't even born yet, this place of the blessed dead that was part of Sheol. And uh, apparently, he waited there a while. I hope God was close to him in fellowship there in Sheol, because He would have waited a while for the next person to come. So, yes, that would be the answer there. Um, Now I Know asks, is it still the case that God will discipline, treat any sinner in the way that he treated Job, even after uh, Jesus died for our sins? Um, Now I Know, yes, in principle, God uses believers to teach angelic beings. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 tell us this. So yes, God still uses believers to teach angelic beings, but what happened to Job wasn't really discipline. What happened to Job wasn't punishment. There was no sin on Job's part that prompted it. God was using Job to teach lessons to angelic beings, and he still does that um, among his people today. So in principle, yes, in practice, I don't know of anybody who suffered to the same extent, suffered the same catastrophe that Job has, though theoretically there could be. Janet asks, in Revelation, who are the 24 elders in heaven? That's referring to Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. Janet, I'll just give you a quick question or quick response to that. They uh, represent the people of God in their entirety 12 from the tribes of Israel, 12 from the apostles of the Lamb. Together, they represent the people of God in their entirety, all of God's redeemed. Um, So yes, that's what I would say to that, Janet. Um, Connie asks, where did purgatory came from? Well, it came from tradition and imagination. It didn't come from the Bible. Purgatory came from the idea that in the Roman Catholic system, there were people who according to their uh, theology, according to their teaching, these people would definitely be saved, they would be going to heaven, yet they had lives that were completely wrong and bad and contrary to Scripture. So what would God do with such people? Well, he would purify them in purgatory. But that's more of a result of Roman Catholic theology, uh, Roman Catholic tradition, There's nothing biblical about it at all. All right. And I'm going to go to part two of lightning round and then going to finish after that. Number one, Terry and William ask, regarding 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11, could we be witnessing the sending out of strong delusion into the world? 
intelligent people believe lies that are being pulled out there by the mainstream media. Second Thessalonians chapter two says, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Terry and William, yes, we may very well be living in fulfillment of those days. It's something to take notice of and to regard seriously. Uh, oftentimes, the fulfillment of prophecy is only certainly known after its fulfillment, but um, there's, there's much to make us think that we are in those days today. Uh, Tony asks, after the millennium, will the population of humanity be set at a fixed number in all of eternity? Um, well, I would say yes, because there won't be more humans being produced. There will be an end, so to speak, of humanity in that regard. And then finally, our last question, lightning round, Pitasoni asks, I listened to one of the top class evangelical teachers who said that if a believer died from suicide, he or she still can go to heaven because they're protected by eternal security. Please give your stance here. Well, Pitasoni, I would just say, simply say this. Um, suicide is a sin. Suicide's murder. And self-murder is a sin. So we should be clear on that. However, it is not the unforgivable sin. It's not the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in and of itself. So I believe that it's very possible for a person who commits suicide under certain circumstances to still go to heaven because it in itself is not the unforgivable sin. Uh, okay, uh, imagine a, another person who dies while in a sin. Um, they're a believer, they've lived a godly life, but okay, well, I'll give a kind of minor example. They run a red light, a traffic light. That's a sin. And they die because of a car crash because of it. W would we say, well, they died in the commission of a sin, therefore they're going to hell? I, I don't think so. W we would understand that even though a believer may have sin in their life, they can still be a true believer, truly born again. So suicide is a sin. It's a serious sin. It's self-murder. But it in and of itself is not the unforgivable sin. So that's how I would regard it, Pitasoni. I would put it in the same category as certain other sins that a person may be committing as they die. Um, you either got to say anybody who commits a sin as they die is going to hell or no one is. But that's where I would make that distinction. Folks, my voice is tired. It's been a great Q&A. Glad you could join us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, God willing, and if I live, we'll be here next Thursday, but not here. I'll be doing the program live from Germany. Uh, I'll be there for a conference, and maybe I'll get a few of my pastor friends and guests on there with me uh, to introduce them to you and maybe help have them help me answer a few questions. That would be awesome if that's the case. So thank you for joining me today. God bless you and uh, hope you can join me again next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.